This is Africa Digest. It's 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we give you news from an African perspective. We are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. We are also on channelafrica.co.za. Hello, my name is Spumele Lezondi. I'm with Onel Nzinzi, Tracy Bumgard and Nedo Chimane. The top stories. Leader of Zimbabwe's opposition appeals for SADC to intervene in the country's crisis. Four people accused of aiding assailants in Kenya's Garissa University terror attack to be put on their defense according to a court ruling. In economic news, US tech giant Apple warns of a glitch that makes it possible to eavesdrop on users of its iPhone and Mac devices. And in sports, South African rugby franchise Western Province has confirmed that a meeting took place between senior management and Stormers players regarding a way forward from the franchise. Leader of the Opposition Movement for Democratic Change, MDC Party, Nelson Chamisa, has appealed for SADC to intervene in Zimbabwe and curb further killings. At least 12 people have been killed, 78 shot, hundreds injured and a thousand arrested during the fuel protest a fortnight ago. Reports of continued military crackdown and rapes have emerged, such as the police have also appealed for victims to make reports. Simon Muchemo has more. Chamisa said a joint operation by police and army has left a trail of heinous abuses, including rape. At least six MDC legislators and several councillors are behind bars in what Chamisa referred to as targeted arrests. Signs of brutality were evident during the media briefing as the harvest house was recently banned. Night raids are still taking place with several people reporting of beatings and abductions, Chamisa said. Cameroon's military has announced new troop deployments to contain spillover from fighting inside the Central African Republic border. Cameroon is also contributing more than a 1,000 troops to the 13,000-strong UN peacekeeping mission. This is, as Sudan last week, hosted a new round of Central African Republic peace talks. More Since 2000... Since 2013, thousands have been killed in CAR and a quarter of the population of 4.5 million people have fled their homes. Last Thursday, peace talks to end chronic violence in the Central African Republic began in Khartoum with representatives of the government and 14 armed groups in attendance according to the UN peacekeeping mission in the CAR. The UN peace mission is comprised of more than 13,000 troops and police, and Cameroon contributes more than 1,000 troops. At least 40 people are believed to have been killed in Venezuela's recent violence, including 26 shot by pro-government forces. 
United Nations human rights spokesperson Rupert Koval says more than 850 people were detained between January 21 and 26, including 77 children, some as young as 12. On January 23, 696 people were detained across the country, the highest daily number of detentions in Venezuela in 20 years. Nigeria's Information Minister Lai Mohammed denies that President Muhammadu Buhari's recent suspension of the country's Chief Justice was related to the upcoming presidential elections. The Chief Justice faces trial on charges of allegedly failing to declare his assets. This is the first time a Chief Justice is standing trial in Nigeria. As the Chief Justice plays a key role in any legal challenge to what could be a disputed vote, critics say his suspension just three weeks before the election is an effort by Buhari to weaken Nigeria's judiciary and pave way for the election to a second term in the February 16 vote. Lastly, the Supreme Court in Pakistan has rejected a legal challenge to the acquittal of a Christian woman who had been sentenced to death for blasphemy. Asia Bibi spent eight years on death row after being accused and then convicted of insulting the Prophet Muhammad in a row with her neighbors. She has always maintained her innocence and her conviction was overturned last October. The BBC's Sekunda Kimani. The case of Asia Bibi has come to symbolize not only the controversy around Pakistan's hardline blasphemy laws, but the divide between liberal and fundamentalist segments of society. Now it seems her ordeal has finally come to an end. Asia Bibi's two daughters are already understood to have left Pakistan, and it's widely believed she too will now be granted asylum abroad. She's been held in a secret location since her release for her own security. Channel African News, I'm Onilin Zinzi. It is 17.06 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Now, despite commitments uh, from African leaders in declaring 2018 as uh, the African Year of Anti-Corruption, perceptions of uh, corruption on the continent remain high. This is according to the 2019 Corruption Perceptions Index by Corruption Watchdog Transparency International. The index presents a largely gloom picture for Africa with only 8 of 49 countries scoring more than 43 out of 100 on the index considered to be the leading global indicator of public sector corruption the index ranks 180 countries and territories by their perceived levels of corruption in the public sector according to experts and business people using a scale of 0 to 100 where 0 is highly corrupt and 100 is very clean South Africa remains in the group of countries that scored below 50 Africa's Kumbero Munjarere spoke to David Lewis, Executive Director of Corruption Watchdog Watch, rather about the highlights. Well, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa has emerged yet again as the uh, group of countries in which uh, perceptions of corruption are highest. 
But this doesn't mean that all sub-Saharan African countries have done badly on the index. They've been dragged down by a lot of countries that have done badly, but countries like Botswana, Senegal, Seychelles, Mauritius, Namibia haven't done, have, haven't done too badly. But the region as a whole has done really badly, and that's because it's a region in which governance is very weak. There are countries still involved in near civil wars and armed conflict, which is obviously not a good environment for tackling corruption. So, you know, the sub-Saharan Africa comes out of the survey quite badly, and the big economies on sub- in sub-Saharan Africa, Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, none of them have done terribly well. The BRICS countries have done even worse than South Africa. You know, I sometimes think that what we have most in common with the BRICS countries is our tolerance or, or the incidence of corruption in the countries. So Russia fares very, very badly. Uh, China, not a whole lot better. Brazil has gone down a lot. India has come up slightly, but remains below South Africa in its ranking and in its score. So it's not a good story for BRICS, nor is it a good story for Sub-Saharan Africa. Countries like Seychelles and Botswana both have relatively well-functioning democratic and governance systems, which has contributed to their healthy positioning on the index. How important are functioning governance systems in terms of reducing public sector corruption? Well, they're, they're very important. I mean, we've seen in the sort of state capture project that South Africans have suffered under, it's precisely the government's institutions that have been captured, that were captured first, like the criminal justice system, the National Prosecuting Authority, Parliament. These were the institutions that were attacked in order to enable uh, the perpetrators of corruption to get to organizations like ESCOM and Transnet and ensure that they would not be held to account for their conduct. I mean, on the other hand, we've seen in South Africa how other important institutions of the democracy, like the media, civil society organizations, the courts, have prevented South Africa from sliding even more further down the ladder. So governance is extremely important, and South Africa's governance institutions have been immensely weakened by corruption and this was this is obviously in a in a young democracy where the institutions have not yet firmly established themselves but many of them have been crashed by those interested in looting the public sector basically now do you think uh, there is a political will on the part of uh, political leaders uh, to root out corruption once and for all because most of the time they are usually corrupt actors who are actively working against measures that have been put in place to fight corruption and they exert um, a great deal of influence over political leaders like what is uh, emerging at the state capture inquiry. Uh, Do you think there is a political will? Well, I think that there is some political will, and I think that has been displayed in South Africa in the last year. The cleaning up of the boards of ESCOM, Transnet, Danel, the dismissal of Moyane and the attempts to 
get SARS back on its feet, the removal of Sean Abrams, uh, the removal of some cabinet ministers, demonstrate that there is a political will to fight corruption. On the other hand, there are plenty of political leaders, many of them mentioned in the Bosasa um, revelations. For example, Nombula Mokonyane, who's a, a powerful and influential leader in the in the governing party and who occupies a senior position in the cabinet, clearly not only have no political will to tackle corruption, but are themselves complicit in. And I'm afraid that there are many others whom all of us could name in the leadership of the governing party and in the leadership of some of the opposition parties who don't display the political will to tackle corruption. Quite the contrary, are satisfied to go along with it for what it brings them personally. So it's a mixed story. And at the moment, I think those who have political will happen to be just slightly the dominant faction in the ruling party and therefore the dominant faction in government. But it's, uh, you know, we need to do a hell of a lot of work still. Now, talk to us about uh, the countries to watch in the coming years uh, uh, that you will be monitoring closely. Well, we don't really monitor other countries except our own. I mean, we're obviously interested in how uh, countries in the African subcontinent, in sub-Saharan Africa, fare, and we work quite closely with Transparency International chapters in uh, many of those countries. So we have a, a strong working relationship with them, and we're interested to know how their countries are doing for some to learn lessons from others to provide lessons to. And then, you know, we're also interested in some of the big countries that have now been dominated by strong men, authoritarian, anti-democratic men, and who themselves, and they're almost always men, and who themselves are display very, very strong signs of being corrupt. The principal amongst those, of course, is the U.S., the United States. David Lewis is the executive director of Corruption Watcher, talking to Kumbero Munjarere. South Africans living abroad will soon be able to register to vote in next year's general election at their respective foreign missions. This was announced by the Independent Electoral Commission of the IEC. The IEC said the registration will take place from 1 to 4 February during office hours at South Africa's 120 foreign missions, including high commissions, embassies and consulates worldwide. Sai Mamabulu is South Africa's chief electoral officer. All South African uh, citizens in possession of an ID document and a passport will are eligible to register and come election day, they'll also be entitled to vote. Now, let's talk about uh, citizens living abroad who are already registered to vote on the national segment of the voters' wall. Does that not cause a little bit of a mix-up or do they still need to re-register wherever they are um, situated now? Not at all. If you are already registered, your right to vote remains unfettered. So um, you just need to confirm with us um, that indeed registered and if it's so, you don't need to re-register at all. And for those who are none the wiser, is this the first time that uh, this has been afforded to South Africans living abroad? And uh, uh, talk to us about the preparations uh, for um, all the missions abroad uh, for the registration of the citizens over this weekend. We are partnering with um, the Department of International Relations and Cooperation, who are our partners in delivering this registration process. 
and uh, indications that we are receiving is that uh, missions are ready, uh, staff has been appointed, and uh, the logistics are in place for a smooth uh, for for a smooth. Uh, registration process uh, at the missions. Finally, um, when are the 2019 elections going to be held? We don't have a date yet, but the president has already indicated that an election will be held in May. We just don't know yet when in May uh, it would be. So, and it is our hope that um, the head of state will, in the not too distant future, um, uh, proclaim the election date or at least announce it. Where else can um, our listeners get more information around this site? Um, is uh, the information on your website? Uh, please uh, do direct them um, accordingly. Our website, um, elections.org.za, is um, open. We have a contact center on 0800-11-8000. So uh, those are the options that are available uh, for people to, to make contact with us. Saima Mabulu is the Chief Electoral Officer of the South African Independent Electoral Commission talking to Zikona Miso. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultanjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Now, four people accused of aiding assailants in Kenya's Garissa University terror attack will be put on their defense, according to a court ruling on Tuesday. The fifth suspect, a security guard at the university, was acquitted. 148 people were killed in the 2015 attack, believed to be one of the worst attacks on Kenyan soil. Yes, Sarah Kimani. The chief magistrate's court ruled that the four who include a Tanzanian national have a case to answer in relation to the planning and the executing of the attack at the university in April 2015. They previously denied 156 counts related to the attack. And that my findings are that the prosecution has made out a prima facie case to warrant the court to call up the first, the second, the third, and the fifth accused persons to offer a defense on the respective counts they are charged with. Gunmen stormed the university, which is close to 200 kilometers from the Somalia border, killing 148 students and staff members. The court, however, freed one of the suspects, Osman Dagane, who worked as a security guard at the institution. I find that the fourth accused person, Osman Abdi Dagane, who was a watchman at the said university college, has no case to answer on any of the counts. The only evidence against Osman uh, Dagane is that he was found at the scene of the attack. This was a day after the incident as the police officers were going around collecting evidence. The prosecution alleged that he was taking photographs of the scene. However, the police officer who gave evidence against him was not the one who saw him.
taking such photos. He was only handed over to him. The case resumes later next month. The Al-Qaeda-linked Al-Shabaab militant group claimed responsibility for that attack. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. The Ministry of Health in South Sudan, with support from the World Health Organization, or WHO, and other partners, has started vaccinating health workers and other frontline responders against Ebola. The Ebola vaccination campaign is part of preparedness measures to fight the spread of the disease, which has been ravaging neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo for months. Although countries bordering the DRC have not reported any cases of Ebola, preparedness is crucial. Vaccination in South Sudan began in high-risk areas bordering the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, which is currently experiencing its 10th outbreak of Ebola. Neighboring countries have not reported any cases of Ebola but have been on high alert. As part of preparedness activities, South Sudan received over 2,000 doses of the Ebola vaccine from Merck, the vaccine developer. The vaccine offers protection against the Zaire strain of the virus, which is the one affecting the DRC at present. Dr. Matsidi Somuedi, who is the Regional Director for Africa at the World Health Organization, WHO, maintains that it is absolutely vital that South Sudan is prepared for any potential case of Ebola spreading beyond the DRC. Muiti says WHO is investing a huge amount of resources into preventing Ebola from spreading outside DRC and helping governments in neighboring countries ramp their readiness to respond should any country have a positive case of Ebola. In supporting South Sudan's Ebola preparedness measures, WHO has helped train 60 health workers in good clinical practice principles and protocol procedures to administer the yet-to-be-licensed Ebola vaccine. To detect any traveler entering the country who may be infected with the virus, the Ministry of Health, with the support of its partners, has established 17 screening points. Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, in addition to its work making the Ebola vaccine stockpile available, is providing $2 million U.S. dollars to support the WHO's vaccination efforts in countries neighboring the DRC, including South Sudan. Gavi Chief Executive Officer Dr. Seth Berkeley says, although research is ongoing, the evidence so far suggests the Ebola vaccine is a highly effective tool to help stop epidemics and can be used to prevent the current national outbreak from becoming a regional one. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabutada in Johannesburg. Abari etise mache mingabo baoni kedu mbote ndemne bonsoir join me richard mwamba for a music show on channel africa called africa in song every saturday and sunday from 18 to 20 hours central african time Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. It is 17.32 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on China Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. It's info at channelafrica.co.za and email. That's info at channelafrica.co.za and email. And if you want to send us WhatsApp messages, it's plus 27763033273. Plus 27763003327.
Now, Nelson Chamisa, the leader of the opposition movement for democratic change in Zimbabwe, has appealed for SEDEC to intervene in that country and curb further killings. At least 12 people have been killed, 78 shots, hundreds injured, and a thousand arrested during the fuel protests a fortnight ago. However, reports of continued military crackdown and rapes have emerged such that the police have also appealed for victims to make reports. Simon Machema is in Harare. Movement for Democratic Change MDC leader Nelson Chamisa has appealed for SADC to act in Zimbabwe as evidence of systematic attacks on civilians by soldiers swells. During his address in the capital on Tuesday, Chamisa said a joint operation by police and army has left a trail of heinous abuses including rape. At least six MDC legislators and several councillors are behind bars in what Chamisa referred to as targeted arrests. Signs of brutality were evident during the media briefing as the harvest house was recently burnt. Glasses were shattered, ceilings and walls were cracked. Chamisa also hinted he was just coming from a funeral in Bari where a 22-year-old man was severely assaulted by soldiers last Friday and died of injuries. Night raids are still taking place with several people reporting of beatings and abductions, Chamisa said. We have said as far as we are concerned, we are now escalating this matter to our regional bodies. In fact, our worry, as I am indicating this move, I have already indicated this to our SADC leaders, that we have a crisis situation in Zimbabwe, the intervention of our regional bodies to try and help the situation. Meanwhile, Zimbabwean police have also issued an appeal for the public to report all human rights abuses. According to Police Commissioner Cherit Charamba, citizens fear repression, hence only one rape case was reported. She assured the nation no one is above the law and soldiers who committed any offenses will be arrested, provided there is enough evidence. In fact, when members of the public fail to report, we always appeal for information. And when it is not forthcoming, we are unable to act. In this regard, reports of abuse and rape can be reported at any police station or directly to National Complaints Desk, which is open 24-7 on the following telephone numbers, 0242-703-631. We also have a WhatsApp number, 0712-800-197. As security services, we are guided by our constitutional mandates during the execution of any given task. At no time do we condone any unlawful conduct by the security forces, which are obviously outside our mandate and responsibilities. To this end, any member who violates the law will only have themselves to blame, as the law will be applied without reservation. No one is above the law. Neti Musanu, Musasa Project Director, also assured Zimbabwean women or perpetrators of rape will be arrested. Musasa Project is an organization that deals with all forms of gender-based violence in Zimbabwe. I are equally concerned uh, with the reports of sexual violence as well as physical violence um, that happened during the shutdown. And we are appealing to women, girls, families to report and if uh, women are afraid to go to the police directly, we work very closely with the victim-friendly uh, police. They can come through Musasa 
They can also call through our toll-free number, which is 0808-0074. They can also visit our different offices in Arare, in Plawayo, in Gweru, and Mashinko. We also have shelters that we can accommodate. So if um, women and children, in particular girls, are feeling uncomfortable going directly to the police, we are available to facilitate their report to the police. But I think what is important is for us to send a message of never again. However, the MDC leader questioned the rationale of victims making reports to the very people accused of human rights abuses. I've listened quite ridiculously to the state saying that people who have been raped must report to the police. How does a perpetrator become a source of refuge to the victims? There's no confidence. There's been an undermining of the confidence because people who are doing these things are doing them under the cover of the state. So we need another body that will be able to help us so that we are able to deal with these issues. Rape has always been used as a tool for subjugation and hundreds of such cases remain unreported in Zimbabwe. In 2008, hundreds of females in Zimbabwe were also subjects of rape as ZANU-PF youths and soldiers terrorized MDC activists. Gukura Hundi era of the 1980s also witnessed a widespread rape attack on young women and no investigations were made. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Abari, etise, mache, mingabu, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir. Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. It's now time for your news headlines. Here's on Ellen Sinti. Cameroon's military announces new troop deployments to contain spillover from fighting inside the Central African Republic border. Leader of the Opposition Movement for Democratic Change, MDC Party, appeals for SADC to intervene in Zimbabwe and curb further killings. And Nigeria's Information Minister, Lai Mohamed, denies that President Muhammadu Buhari's recent suspension of the country's Chief Justice was related to the upcoming presidential elections. Channel African News, I'm Onilin Zinzi. Thank you very much, Onele. It is info at channelafrica.co.za. That's info at channelafrica.co.za. If you want to send us emails, you can send your WhatsApp messages to plus two seven seven six three. 
0033273776300327 or you can find us on Twitter it is channel Africa 1 my name is Spumelele Zondi with you until 1800 hours central african time now civil society leaders from Zimbabwe met in Johannesburg South Africa today to discuss ways of mobilizing the region and african union to escalate calls to remove sanctions in Zimbabwe the african unions removing sanctions from Zimbabwe conference discussed amongst others the impact of sanctions not only on Zimbabwe but the southern region as a whole to discuss this further we're now joined on the line by Patson Malisa who is the deputy presiding officer at the African Union Economic Social and Cultural Council hello and thank you very much for joining us Patson thank you very much for having me and good afternoon to all um, Patson, can you just tell us about um, who was at the meeting, um, which members of civil society? Well, we had quite a variety. We had uh, members of the Zimbabwe Amalgamated Council of Churches. In fact, they were led by their patron, who flew in all the way from Zimbabwe along with his delegation. And then um, we had members of business, as well as civil society um, in uh, and women engagement, and then on the South African side, we also had members of civil society representing youth, representing business, and from a regional perspective as well, uh, in terms of side relations with the country. Mm. Um, uh, why sanctions? Well, the type of sanctions that have been leveled against Zimbabwe basically alienate them from participating within the world economy, and as you know, in in economic context, our biggest leverage is our raw materials being exported in exchange for hard currency to then purchase goods and uh, much-needed commodities. Now, the sanctions that are leveled against Zimbabwe basically deprive them of that opportunity to trade fairly and uh, get necessary currencies and necessary leverage to uh, access the basic needs and commodities that make the country work. Mm. Um, and you don't think this is the right way of going about it. Um, some people might argue that um, one of the reasons apartheid had to end in South Africa was because of economic sanctions against South Africa and the states could no longer fund the system anymore because there were sanctions. Well, the Zimbabwean context is quite different in the sense of that Firstly, the issue is not necessarily that it's a democratic uh, context because South is subjected to the African Charter on Democracy, Elections and Government, and they have complied fully in that regard. In fact, to the point that even in 2008, when they had their problems with uh, contestation of results as well as uh, the violence that escalated, they subjected themselves to the processes that were led by SADC as per delegation of the African Union, and they came up with a global uh, political agreement, which basically gave both uh, all three parties that were in the in the majority of the democratic vote to shape over a period of five years, so that they could go into a new constitutional dispensation and then conduct elections uh, on a on a new on a new slate. So as opposed to apartheid, whereas it was an illegitimate government because it was not chosen by the majority and it was not serving the people and it was not meant 
to actually be within the best interests of the development of all. So the two scenarios are quite different, and also the sanctions that are being placed against uh, Zimbabwe are mandatory sanctions. So in other words, there is no choice for all for any entity from Europe or the United States to trade with Zimbabwe without getting violations or um, uh, punishment from the government. Whereas the sanctions that were being imposed on South Africa, these sanctions were actually as a matter of, yes, uh, this is a government position and we will not trade. However, there was no, there was no particular position that would say that goods not be sent to South Africa. That American companies could have actually Africa whilst others didn't. Mm. Um, what about Zimbabweans who complain about um, with the legitimacy of the elections that get held and the legitimacy of the results that come out uh, of those elections that get held? Well, in a democracy, everyone is entitled to their opinion. And it's, they're well in their right to say that. We at the African Union are mandated by our statutes as well as our charters to conduct thorough monitoring and evaluation of elections and the electoral process, which is why our electoral monitoring teams are usually the broadest in the African space than any other. You usually see that many electoral teams would go into one or two major hotspot provinces, whereas African Union monitoring teams are stationed in every province or region within, within the African states that will be holding its elections. Mm. Um, do you, Petson, um, look at how um, a state, a particular African state, treats its citizens? Um, there's been widely documented evidence, especially by news media, um, of Zimbabwean police um, unleashing wrath on Zimbabweans. In fact, after a news report um, that uh, was broadcast um, all over the world, mostly in Britain yesterday, the president said those policemen who are seen in that video must be arrested. Um, do you look at those issues at all? We do look at it, and in fact, those are some of the key areas discussed today. And one of the outcomes coming out is in, in, an, in an environment where it's difficult for people to advance themselves, there are extreme measures that are put to voice their frustration as well as uh, measures that are then put by government and by its forces to try and correct. And quite frankly, it's something that needs to be understood in the light of context. And one of the things that we're trying to do at the African Union is to say, what is the long-term solution for the people of Zimbabwe? Are we simply going to say we condemn, or are we going to assist people towards building a type of society where such acts are not necessary, and hence the need to develop the social and economic fabric of the country? And one of the elements for the removal of sanctions. All right. Thank you very much for joining us, Patson. Thank you. All right, Patson Amanisa, there's the Deputy Presiding Officer at the African Union Economic, Social and Cultural Council.
South Africa's agricultural industry body, Agri-South Africa, has warned that it needs over $2 million U.S. dollars to support farmers that have been severely hit by the recent drought. The organization says crops are under severe strain as the livestock industry across the country is under pressure and they need animal fodder and other forms of aid to survive the current season. Farmers have faced dry conditions over most of the country and as they are still recovering from a disastrous El Nino-induced drought in 2015. Agri-SA's Christophan de Riede says the situation is dire. The situation is quite bad. We have started uh, to pick up that the sector is under quite strain since last year, November. Remember, during November, most of our summer rainfall areas should have got the rain. Unfortunately, the rain came very, very late, and just in the Gauteng region and in parts of the Free State, mostly the eastern parts. Uh, the western part of the Free State, the big part of the Eastern Cape, the Western Cape, Northern Cape, uh, yes, the, the entire region, uh, the Northern Cape region and Northwest are under quite, quite severe strain. And uh, our research that we have done indicates that farmers and farm workers are experiencing quite a challenge. And, uh, how many farmers are we talking about when we look at who's been affected? We've uh, done a few calculations and we get to approximately 12,000 farmers that are at this point in time severely affected uh, by the drought. And uh, uh, when we look at uh, um, your process, I know you're in the process um, at the moment of approaching different banks and government to help raise money. Have you raised any money so far and what's been uh, the response to this call? We've asked for uh, three million rand, uh, three billion rand. Uh, government, uh, we've, we've, we are hoping that government will provision for that in the forthcoming budget. And that three billion rand uh, should be utilised for a couple of things. First and foremost, as a sort of guarantee to um, provide farmers with a payment holiday, also to perhaps subsidise the interest on their loans, and thirdly to give uh, them a longer period to pay back that loan. But also we're looking at how we can sustain farm workers on uh, farms uh, which are now uh, under severe constraint due to the drought and perhaps give them an allowance just to come by. Uh, The other part of that uh, money should go to fodder so that we can get that to the livestock out there and even food hampers and water, uh, bottled water or something to that effect just to keep people going on uh, those farms. And uh, just uh, uh, finally, this is of course not the first time that the sector has experienced such a drought. Um, What has the agricultural sector really done since the last time um, we had this um, situation? Has there been enough done to sort of avoid a recurring situation? And uh, there was also a survey that showed that uh, 31,000 jobs and 7 billion in potential revenue were lost. Talk to us about that. Farmers have got used to a six-year cycle, uh, and uh, they plan towards that. What we're now currently experiencing is uh, almost just in a space of two years, we are now experiencing another very, very severe drought. And uh, we are quite concerned because it might uh, be uh, that uh, climate change has an impact and they start to bite. Farmers, on the other hand, has done a lot of preparatory work, buying new seed technologies, investing in new water irrigation methods, and a range of other systems just to come by and to cope with uh, climate change. But we are we need government intervention, government assistance, uh, and we look at a national drought insurance scheme. Uh, we also look at fodder banks, and we also need to look at a 
entire water delivery system in South Africa. Many of our towns are reliant on boreholes. Those boreholes are drying up. You also find that a lot of the infrastructure in many towns, water infrastructure in particular, uh, is in a dilapidated state. Uh, so there we need government assistance to make sure that uh, crop insurance, water systems, as well as um, you know any other infrastructure-related systems are properly in, a, in the proper working uh, order so that uh, it just makes easier for farmers to cope uh, during a uh, spell of drought. And uh, just finally, before you, we let you go, um, I mean, you've highlighted um, a lot of the issues that you're facing at the time, but what will be um, your next step in terms of making sure that um, that call for that money that you're looking for is really heeded to and you get the support that you need? I think collaboration now between government and the industry is of critical importance. Uh, with the outbreak of food and mouth disease, the international market slapped the ban on South Africa. So that in itself poses severe financial risk to the country and in terms of a foreign exchange. Uh, we could contain that outbreak and we are now giving insurances to the international uh, world that they can import South Africa's meat. Uh, we are now in the process of also engaging with government to how do we, as a in partnership, uh, deal with the drought issue and also with all other related issues such, such as pumping of food on the African soil and uh, also uh, how do we, uh, you know, cope with with, uh, climate change, but we need collaboration now urgently between all of the stakeholders. That is Christophe van der Rieder, Deputy Executive Director at AgriSA, talking to Zikona Miso. It is now time for your economic news. Here's Tracy Bumgott. Thank you. South Africa remains among the world's most corrupt countries. This after the country ranked 73 in the 2018 Corruption Perceptions Index released by Transparency International. The index uses a scale of 0 to 100, where 0 is highly corrupt and 100 is very clean. South Africa had a score of 43 and was placed ninth in sub-Saharan Africa, which is ranked as the worst performing region in the world. The most incorrupt countries are Denmark and New Zealand and the most corrupt Somalia, Syria and South Sudan. Corruption Watch is calling on South Africa to strengthen measures against corruption and to ensure that there is a strong prosecution for the corrupt. Its executive director, David Lewis, says not much has changed from the previous stats. Our score places us in that category of countries who have been to have serious corruption, it's not good news. We've gone slightly down. But, you know, whether it's worse or whether it's better, it's of a scale that is not good. The next time the survey is taken, we had better have some serious prosecution. Norway has contributed around $3.6 million to the World Food Programme to help provide school meals to children in Malawi. This contribution will benefit nearly 767,000 children in primary schools and early childhood development centres in food-insecure districts from March to October this year. Minister of Education, Science and Technology, Brat Musaka, says the initiative will help in the retention of children in schools, reduce malnutrition, infections and opportunistic diseases. 
Algeria's Energy Department says the national mining sector and hydrocarbons should rely on the modern techniques and technologies in order to better evaluate the resources which remain underexplored by Algeria. Energy Minister Mustafa Gutuni says the main objective is to evaluate the new hydrocarbon reserves, including those accessible through the improvement of recovery rates in mature oil pools. It's believed that due to the latest oil crisis, technology and innovation is the main asset for the sector's companies to guarantee their survival. With the impending withdrawal of the United Kingdom from the European Union hanging over many countries' heads, the United Kingdom's High Commissioner Nick Haley says this will not affect trade relations with Kenya. Speaking during a meeting with Deputy President William Ruto, Haley said Kenya remains a strong and strategic trading and investment partner to the United Kingdom. The UK is one of the largest investors in Kenya. Haley says there's close to 300,000 Kenyans living and working in the UK. U.S. tech giant Apple has warned of a glitch that makes it possible to eavesdrop on users of its iPhone and Mac devices. The problem is linked to the FaceTime feature, which is used for video calls. The company says a fix would be available in a few days. In the meantime, Apple appears to have disabled the ability for users to make group calls on FaceTime. The BBC's Dave Lee reports. Just hours before the floor was made public, Apple boss Tim Cook was lauding the importance of data security on what was U.S. National Privacy Day. The firm has also spent the past few months chastising companies like Facebook over their data breaches. But as Apple prepares to release its quarterly earnings, expected to be its worst performing for years, that confidence may appear more than a little misguided. The US dollar is trading at 360.33 Nigerian Naira, 10.22 Botswana Pula at 99.94 Kenyan Shilling and 11.89 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 3.75 Brazilian Hale, 65.99 Russian Ruble, 70.92 Indian Rupee, 6.75 Chinese Yuan and a 13.64 South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 75 pence to the British pound and at 87 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,304 and platinum at $810 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $60.10 a barrel. For Channel African News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Thank you very much, Tracy. It is now time for your sports news. Yes, Neto Chimane. Thank you, Spomelele. A very good evening to all sport fans. Starting off with rugby news. 
South African Rugby Union Western Province today confirmed that a meeting took place between senior management and Stormers players regarding a way forward for the franchise. This follows recent media reports that the union's president, Zalt Marais, wanted assistant coach Paul Treu to replace Gert Smale as director of rugby and that players held an emergency meeting chaired by Captain Siakolisi on Sunday afternoon with headline sponsor DHL, who seemingly then gave an ultimatum to remove Treu from the system. In a press release issued by the union today, Western Province Rugby said Stormers players did not meet on Sunday but had met with the leadership on Monday. CEO Paul Zags says the immediate focus is on the upcoming Super Rugby campaign and ensuring the Stormers are well prepared. On to football news. The English Premiership returns tonight with six matches after the FA Cup weekend. Channel Africa sports editor Tabison Dema has more. Match day 24 kicks off with Arsenal at home against Cardiff City. Fulham quest to escape relegation continues at Craven Cottage against Brighton, Hoven Albion. Huddersfield Town welcome the inconsistent Everton. Wolves are at home against West Ham, who have been blowing hot and cold to the dislike of their manager Manuel Pellegrini. Manchester United will be looking to make it 8 out of 8 in all competitions when they host Burnley at Old Trafford. Newcastle have a tricky home tie against title-chasing Manchester City, who could reduce the points gap to just a point behind Liverpool if they win this tie. Three top five teams on the lock, Liverpool, Tottenham and Chelsea, play on Wednesday. South African men's under-20 national team Amaji does preparations for the Confederation of African Football. CAF Africa Cup of Nations tournament continues despite their disappointment following Ghana's withdrawal on their friendly match scheduled to be played yesterday. Amajita defended defeated Niger's professional league side AS Police FC 3-0 earlier today in a practice match. The much-anticipated anticipated Continental Youth Tournament is set to to take place in Niger from the 2nd to the 17th of February. Amajita coach Tabasinong says the practice match was not a bad exercise. Yeah, not a bad exercise. I think, uh, you know, the boys uh, got an interesting friendly. But of course, you know, surely they are still disappointed uh, that maybe they did not get an opportunity to play with Ghana because sometimes it's a little bit risky to play uh, the first game of the tournament without an international friendly. But I think the training still looks good, the chemistry still looks good and uh, uh, we just hope that the team can improve uh, in few aspects, especially after the information we got from the game. On to Netball News. The International Netball Federation will in March announce who will host the 2023 Netball World Cup. New Zealand and South Africa are bidding to host the showpiece. Should South Africa win the bid, they will become the first African country to host the tournament. On the other hand, New Zealand have hosted the showpiece two previous times, back in 1975 and 2007. Cecilia Molokwani, president of Netball South Africa, believes they have done all they could to secure the hosting rights. We wouldn't even have left South Africa to go and do that presentation if we were not positive. We believe and we know in our hearts 
that it's time for Africa, it's time for South Africa to host this World Cup. And we hope that the world, even the INF board and the Bid Evaluation Committee, feels the same as we do. We put in a very good bid, and you see, you saw even the contingency that went there, I mean, led by the, by the Minister of Sport, I mean, advocating for women's sport as a woman, it said a lot. And also, you know, having the support from local government, that is, means a city of Cape Town, and having support from provincial government and national government, wow, for us is a cherry on top. So who else doesn't want to associate with us? Moreover, a beautiful city like Cape Town. And finally, in cricket news, all-rounder Vianne Melda has been added to South Africa's men's senior cricket team ahead of the fifth and final ODI against Pakistan at Newlands in Cape Town on Wednesday. Melda has played seven ODIs and recently returned from an ankle injury and took ten wickets in three four-day franchise series games for the Lions and also struck 146 against the Knights in Bloemfontein last week. The series is currently locked at two all. Play on Wednesday starts at 1300 Central African time. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. Stay tuned. This is Africa Digest. Central African Time right here on Africa Digest. Let's recap our top stories. Leader of Zimbabwe's opposition appeals for SADC to intervene in the country's crisis. Four people accused of aiding assailants in Kenya's Garissa University terror attack to be put on their defense according to a court ruling. With that, we wrap up Africa Digest. For myself, Spumele Lezondi, producer Luanda Mahome, technical producer Wiseman Mangaile, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for tuning in. It's info at channelafrica.co.za on email, plus 27763003327 on WhatsApp and Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. We leave you with Sienna Naya by Shabalala Rhythms and Oliver Mdukuti.